to the DC Debrief for Friday, July 7th, 2023. I'm your host, John Stolness, and coming up on the Debrief, with Congress out until next week, we're going to do a little bit of a different podcast this week. We're going to focus on three stories in particular, rather than the normal Debrief rundown. On the agenda, details on how lawmakers are working together, together, I said, to tackle two very different yet critical areas pharmacy benefit managers and the cost of prescription drugs, and the future of artificial intelligence. Also, I'm going to talk with CBN News national security correspondent Caitlin Burke on a recent story she did on the Colorado River and how Washington is working to make sure farmers and supermarkets provide food to your table. All that coming up on this edition of the D.C. Debrief. But just a reminder, everyone, to please tell a friend or a family member about the D.C. Debrief. You can even put it in their phones for them if you want to. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts, you can get the DC Debrief. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and a review to help the podcast grow. All right, everybody, let's get to the debrief. Up first, pharmacy benefits manager hearing in the House. Earlier this month, the House Oversight Committee held a hearing on PBMs. Those are pharmacy benefit managers. And for people who are on prescription drugs, treating things like cancer or heart disease or other ailments that require prescription drugs, PBMs play a huge role in what you pay for those drugs. Now, for those of you who don't know what a PBM is, they are essentially a medical middleman when it comes to prescription drugs. They are third-party administrators of prescription drug programs for commercial health care plans, for self-insured employer plans, for Medicare Part D, for the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, as well as state government employee plans. And folks, it is a huge industry. As of 2016, PBMs manage pharmacy benefits for 266 million Americans. Health insurance companies hire these third-party, for-profit companies to negotiate prices for them with drug manufacturers. Now, PBMs were originally created to aggregate all of the different types of drugs that are out there and then come up with tiers that are supposed to let the consumer choose which of the medications they want because these medications are priced differently. PBMs negotiate price discounts and get rebates from from drug manufacturers in order to allow that company's drug to be part of the healthcare plan that they represent. But the fact that those PBMs have negotiated a lower price than the list price for those drugs, critics of these plans now say those rate rebates are never made known to the patient. So even though The drug may be sold at list price to the patient. It's not the price that the manufacturer negotiated with the PBM. The PBM received a net profit as a result. So the drug that you're paying for could have cost you less if the PBM had passed that rebate along. But the argument is they often don't. It's also been argued that they steer certain medications, certain drugs to patients, and they steer the drugs that they got a bigger rebate for. And sometimes steering those drugs away 
uh, against the medicine that was prescribed by the patient's doctor. So the doctor prescribes a patient a certain medication, but the but the pharmacy benefit manager says, no, we want you to take this other medication that's like the medication the doctor gave you. But the argument, again, by critics is that they're steering patients away, steering patients to drugs that they would receive a bigger rebate for, that they would receive a bigger profit for than the the drug that the doctor has prescribed. This is an issue that some doctors in, in a house hearing in the past month we're saying is a big problem, and we're going to get to that in just a second. Now, on the other side of the coin, you will have people that argue in favor of PBMs. The Pharmaceutical Care Management Association, which is a pro-PBM group, says that PBMs save payers and patients an average of $1,040 per year, that for every $1 spent on their services, PBMs reduce costs by $10, and that PBMs save payers and patients 40 to 50% on prescription drugs and related medical costs. They also say that that they offer home delivery on medications, they encourage the use of generics and more affordable brand medications, that they negotiate rebates from drug manufacturers and discounts from from, from drug stores, they reduce waste and improve adherence, and they also say that PBMs will help prevent 1 billion medication errors. They also say that the vast majority of employers, 9 in 10, are satisfied with their PBM. This is not a partisan issue. Both Republicans and Democrats in a House Oversight Committee hearing that took place at the beginning of the month were were really pressing. It's a concern that both sides of the aisle have. Over the last few years, both Republicans and Democrats have been calling for congressional oversight and reforming of these PBMs. Oversight Chairman James Comer, a Republican, said in the hearing that there is an incongruity. Today, health care premiums have increased faster than inflation. List prices for prescription drugs have gone through the roof, even though net prices have declined. And despite this increase in health care costs, life expectancy has remained stagnant. That means someone is benefiting, and it isn't patients. Look no further than PBMs or pharmacy benefit managers. Comer also explained how PBMs make their money. In the Medicare program, PBMs often claw back billions of dollars in reimbursements paid to competing pharmacies. PBMs also steer patients to certain pharmacies and certain medications. By doing this, they can increase patients' copays and force manufacturers to increase list prices in order to meet the PBM's higher rebate demands. The big three PBMs have created group purchasing organizations, some incorporated abroad, to better hide the rebates and fees they receive. It's hard to see how these tactics actually benefit patients. And Comer noted that Congress needs to step in and provide oversight into this business. State attorneys general in Ohio, Oklahoma, Utah, Texas, and others Uh, have filed lawsuits and opened investigations into the anti-competitive practices of PBMs. State legislatures across the country have passed legislation preventing some of their anti-competitive practices and requiring transparency in pricing and contracts. The Federal Trade Commission has opened an investigation into PBMs' anti-competitive actions. Congress must act also. The top Democrat on the committee, Jamie Raskin, agreed with Comer that this is an important issue. If the U.S. healthcare system worked as intended, PBMs should be negotiating 
lower drug prices on behalf of insurance companies who would then pass the savings on to their patients. But that's not what's happening. As we'll hear today, some PBM practices appear to be increasing the cost of medicine, actively preventing patients from accessing the drugs that their doctors have determined are appropriate for them, playing outrageous hide-and-go-seek games with people's medicine and hurting independent and community pharmacies. Comer also said PBMs have grown out of control since they first got started in the late 1960s. When PBMs were first created, they were beneficial to the entire healthcare system. There were more than a dozen large PBMs across the country, all competing with each other to provide clear details about cost, fees, and rebates to pharmacies and patients. They were able to quickly tell pharmacists across the country whether insurance would cover a patient's medication and what the patient's copay would be. They were able to negotiate reduced cost of prescription drugs, pitting competing manufacturers against one another. They were able to drive down premiums for patients by encouraging greater adoption of lower-cost medication. But today, they have largely outgrown this role. Now, instead of fierce competition, three large PBMs, CVS, Caremark Express Scripts, and Optum RX, collectively control 80% of the market. Today, every major PBM is owned by a major health insurer and owns or is owned by a specialty, mail order, or retail pharmacy, or all three. This means that when PBMs negotiate with a pharmacy or a health insurer, they are either negotiating with themselves or one of their direct competitors. But one of the things Raskin did note was that this is just one piece of the larger medical puzzle, the prescription drug puzzle. Um, he places a lot of the blame also on the drug manufacturers who, manufacturers, who he says is overcharging consumers for medication. Now, uh, they had uh, a few witnesses at this hearing. Uh, one of them was Greg Baker, who is the CEO of Affirmed Rx. Now, Greg Baker, Affirmed Rx, is a, is a pharmacy benefit manager. However, he is promoting more transparency in the business. And Comer asked Baker about the disparity of one particular common cancer drug. This poster shows imatinib, a generic chemotherapy drug used to treat leukemia can cost a patient at CVS more than $17,000 for a 30-day supply. An identical prescription, a 30-day supply of imanitib, would only cost $72 at cost plus drugs. That's a massive difference. Mr. Baker, do you attribute the difference in cost to PBMs? I do, yes, sir. Another one of the witnesses was Dr. Miriam Atkins. She's an oncologist at Augusta Oncology Associates, Associates, and she testified about the detrimental effect PBMs was having on some of her patients. Comer asked, Dr. Atkins, as an oncologist, do you think a patient's more likely to be able to take the drug to treat their cancer if it's $72 or $17,000? $72 for so sure. Would you agree that insane prices on vital medications like this are killing people because they can't afford it? Yes, because some patients, they can't afford it, they won't take the medication. And Dr. Atkins shared a real-world example of the difficulty one of her patients had getting medication that he needed to fight his cancer because of the role that PBMs play with pharmacies and health insurance. 
The patient I mentioned in my, in my testimony, I wrote his prescription on October 14th. And when I saw him two weeks later, I said, how are you doing? How's the medicine? He said, I don't know. I don't have it. So I investigated with my own pharmacy, and they told me, well, his insurance told us to send it someplace else. And then that pharmacy uh, took it, CVS Caremark, and the patient went back and forth, back and forth. He finally got his medication on December 1st. And when I spoke to that patient a few weeks ago to see how he was doing, he's actually doing well on the medication. Fortunately, he told me he has to go through these hoops every single month to get his medication refilled. Members of Congress also shined a light on how PBMs are affecting private pharmacies, the mom-and-pop pharmacies that you see fewer and fewer of every year. I'm not talking about the giants like CBS and Walgreens. These are, the, these are the independent pharmacies that you might see in typical Main Street. Kevin Duane is the owner of one of those private pharmacies, Panama Pharmacy, and he stressed that PBMs initially did do some good. They actually did serve a helpful purpose to the consumer and the independent pharmacies. We feel that PBMs do a very good job in general of trying to keep down prices when they want to. But unfortunately, as you've brought up in the intervening years since they started their mission of, you know, coordinating care for people and making sure that there's payment mechanisms for independent pharmacists to quickly get paid. Um, these for-profit companies have created numerous pockets of money that they can hide and uh, make sure that they're investing back in shareholder value, which is driving up costs for the American public, and that's probably not fair. Dwayne discussed how it is that PBMs profit from being the middleman. The PBM can sit in the middle and say, hey, so here's $10 for the prescription that you dispensed and the hard work that the independent pharmacist did. Self-funded employer, I'm going to charge you $20 then for that same prescription because you really don't know what I paid the pharmacy over here. And it creates a lot of opacity and a lot of opportunities for profiteering. Republican Congressman Gary Palmer asked Baker, the CEO of Affirmed Rx, about what's called spread pricing. That's the difference between what the PBM charges pharmaceutical companies for the drugs and then how much they charge pharmacies and patients to buy them, as well as the potential self-benefiting pricing strategies. I think depending on what happens with the money that's actually spread. So some people contend that when that spread occurs, the monies go back and help drive down plan costs. And if that's the case and we have transparency around it, it might not be a bad thing. My general contention is the opposite, that I think more often than not, spread pricing is just used in a world where nobody sees what's occurring to drive profits back to these large organizations, and that's a bad thing. So you could be directing patients to use certain medications to receive the larger rebates and because we don't have the transparency, we really can't track it. Is that what you're saying? That's a very accurate statement. Now, both Republicans and Democrats on the committee agreed that transparency is what's needed most right now in this industry. And that there are some PBMs, like the one Greg Baker owns, that are trying to be transparent and to do what these managers were designed to do, and that is to save patients money on their prescriptions. But this is something that is on the radar of both Republicans and Democrats, at least in the House Oversight Committee, uh, but also um, the Senate, which I know multiple senators have, uh, ha have raised awareness of this and are encouraging for more transparency and oversight into this business. Washington races to understand and put guardrails on AI. Over the last couple of weeks, both President Biden and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer talked about the future of artificial intelligence as U.S. lawmakers try to wrap their heads around this ever-changing technology. It is, it is changing and growing 
by leaps and bounds, day by day, week by week, month by month. It's, it's crazy how fast artificial intelligence is moving forward right now. Last week, President Biden met with AI and tech industry leaders at his, as, his, as his administration tries to figure out how to regulate artificial intelligence. The president noting that AI has the potential to help economic growth in the U.S. and to aid in national security. There are good things about artificial intelligence. It could be used in a positive way, the president argues. But he's also warning against and trying to find out ways to protect against any potential dangers. And yes, you're not the only one who cringed a bit when the words national security and artificial intelligence are mentioned in the same sentence. As For those of you who are like me who have seen The Terminator or The Matrix, you know the machines come for us one day, right? All kidding aside, though, this is the tech industry's Wild West right now. The president met in San Francisco with Tristan Harris, who is the executive director of the Center for Human Technology, Jim Steyer, the CEO of Common Sense Media, uh, and Joy... I'm going to I'm going to foul this name up. Bualamwin, the founder of the Algorithmic Justice League, which, again, is not an organization you will find in D.C. comics, but uh, is at the forefront of dealing with artificial intelligence. The same here today. I want to hear directly from the experts. And these are the world, some of the world's leading experts on this issue uh, and the intersection of technology and society who we uh, we can provide uh, a range. Who can provide a range of perspectives for us, and uh, on AI's enormous promise and its risks. As I've said before, we'll see more technological change in the next 10 years than we've seen in the last 50 years, and maybe even beyond that. And uh, AI is already driving that change in every part of American life often in ways we don't notice. The president said he's aware of privacy and security concerns. In seizing this moment, we need to manage the risks uh, to our society, to our economy and our national security. My administration is committed, is committed to safeguarding America's rights and safety, from protecting privacy to addressing bias and disinformation, to making sure AI systems are safe before they are released. Last October, we proposed an AI Bill of Rights to ensure that important protections were built into the AI systems from the very start. And Biden noted that social media has already shown the harm that technology can do without the right safeguards in place. And as Congress has tried to deal with social media, obviously the challenges in dealing with artificial intelligence are 10 times greater than that. AI, AI tools like ChatGPT are able to craft text, music, images, and computer code that is, it is human-like in its ability to understand what it is users want and to make it look so realistic and sound so realistic. This form of automation could increase productivity of workers, but experts also warn of numerous risks with AI. So what are some of those risks? Bias and discrimination based on how the AI systems are developed. Privacy concerns, because artificial intelligence mines personal data. The instilling of moral and ethical values in AI, especially when it comes to decision-making. That worries Christians, faith leaders especially, but really is a concern for everyone. 
you don't know where artificial intelligence, where the AI is getting certain information and whether or not the people who have programmed this have a certain set of morals or ethics or beliefs that may be different from yours. The fact that a small number of corporations could dominate AI and wield enormous amounts of influence and control over decisions and information that's released. The loss of critical thinking skills and job losses as computers do more of our thinking for us. And even our creative work, as we just mentioned, with art and music. It can also increase misinformation. These are just some of the risks that even tech industry insiders, the people who are creating these different things are warning against. They understand that these are all part of the risks of artificial intelligence. Now, Congress, in addition to the White House and the Biden administration, is also set to tackle some of these issues, especially in the Senate, where Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer made a major policy speech last week in which he announced they will begin a series of working groups this fall to come up with tangible steps forward to better understanding the future of AI the risks, and what steps Congress might need to take to regulate it. The first issue we must tackle is encouraging, not stifling, innovation. But if people don't think innovation can be done safely, that will slow AI's development and prevent us from moving forward. So my safe innovation framework calls for security, accountability, protecting our foundations, and lastly, explainability. Schumer also outlined one area in which AI needs to be addressed pretty clearly. When you ask an AI system a question and it gives you an answer, perhaps the answer you weren't expecting, you want to know where the answer came from. You should be able to ask, why did AI choose this answer over some other answer that also could have been a possibility? And it should be done in a simple way so all users can understand how these systems come up with answers. Congress should make this a top priority. And companies and experts must take the lead in helping us solve this very important problem. Tech leaders say the industry has led the way to, uh, on putting up those guardrails because uh, they argue that it's too confusing for Congress. But one AI leader, ChatGPT creator Sam Altman, testified before a Senate hearing last month in which he asked Congress, almost begged Congress, to regulate them. And he proposed the formation of a U.S. or a global agency that would license the most powerful AI systems and, and would have the authority to take that license away and ensure compliance with uh, a publicly agreed to safety standards. Now, Schumer says Congress can't act as normal in this situation because Congress moves too slowly to deal with the rapid pace at which AI is growing. It takes too long with hearings and, and the, the, the different ways that Congress typically handles situations like this. Congress will also need to invent a new process to develop the right policies to implement our framework. AI moves so quickly and changes at near exponential speed and there's li such little legislative history on this issue, we will need help from creators, innovators, and experts in the field. That is why later this year, I will invite top AI experts to come to Congress and convene a series of first-ever AI Insight Forums.
and he stresses that this cannot be a partisan issue, that both sides of the aisle need to work together on artificial intelligence. AI is one issue that must lie outside the typical partisan fights of Congress. The changes AI will bring will not discriminate between left or right or center. Republicans, like Senator J.D. Vance, believe it should be the industry that leads the way, but they do agree, Republicans agree, that Congress has a role to play in this, but that it, it should be further down the road and not until Congress knows enough about AI to make those changes intelligently. Now, the United States, it is seen as being a little bit behind other uh, governmental groups. The European Union already has begun to establish guardrails on artificial intelligence. They've started to categorize it. And even some AI is outlawed by risk level. China has also made companies legally liable if any company misuses AI. There is a bipartisan group of lawmakers who have unveiled the National AI Commission Act, a commission that would be tasked with figuring out the best ways to regulate it. Schumer said his hope is that Congress will have finalized legislation on this within months, not years. Uh, some of the other bipartisan uh, legislation regarding AI released in the last two months, in the last couple of months, two bills in particular. Uh, Democrat Senator Gary Peters, he chairs the Homeland Security Committee. He's introduced a bill along with Republican senators Mike Braun and James Lankford that would require the U.S. government to tell people when a particular agency is using AI to interact with them. The bill would also require government agencies to create a way for people to appeal any decisions that are made by AI. You also have Democratic Senators Michael Bennett and Mark Warner, who have introduced a measure along with Republican Senator Todd Young that would establish an Office of Global Competition Analysis that would look to ensure that the U.S. stayed in the front, stayed stayed at the, at the head of the pack in developing artificial intelligence. Now, it is telling when the creator of one of the first popular AI systems is asking Congress to watch what their industry is doing, and it begs the question about the wisdom of AI, if the industry itself is scared of what could happen next. But this is clearly going to be a focus of Congress, both among Republicans and Democrats, over the next few months. And one last note about AI, specifically dealing with national security. There was a Politico story that came out last week that took a look at how the Pentagon is struggling with catching up to adversaries in using artificial intelligence in war planning and fighting. It noted that the military's own requirements for buying and contracting have trapped it in a, a process that is geared more towards traditional hardware. It's, more, it's slow moving. And to make sure that the Pentagon is keeping up with its adversaries, Democrat Senators Mark Warner and Michael Bennett and, and Republican Senator Todd Young, I just mentioned a minute ago, they introduced a, a bill to analyze how the U.S. is faring on key technologies, um, specifically with national defense in mind as well. General Mark Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, recently told Congress that the military was, quote, in a transition period and acknowledged that it needs to adapt to the new demands of warfare. Uh, how would the Defense Department use AI? From piloting unmanned fighter jets to using AI to help them come up with ideas tactic for tactical suggestions for military leaders based on data that they're getting in real time so that they can implement it on the battlefield in real time. Right now, AI is just a tiny fraction 
of total money being given over to the Defense Department. This year, the Pentagon requested just under $2 billion, $1.8 billion, to research, develop, test, and evaluate artificial intelligence. That's mo- that's more than it ever has, but it's a $900 billion defense budget. And they're talking about $1.8 billion of that to go towards AI. And there is a sense in Congress and among those in the Defense Department that that number drastically needs to be ramped up in order to keep up with what Japan is doing, what China is doing, what other industry, what other countries and adversaries are doing in terms of artificial intelligence. So two key areas where Republicans and Democrats are working together here, making prescription drug costs lower for you and trying to get their heads around artificial intelligence. The Colorado River has been the source of a lot of concern out west in the face of severe drought conditions the last couple of years. And while a wetter than normal winter helped bring those levels up a bit, officials in Washington, D.C. are trying to help maintain those levels and keep it from running dry. Our national security correspondent, Caitlin Burke, joins me now to talk about a story she did. Caitlin, thank you for joining me. Sure, happy to be here. So before we get into what lawmakers here in the district are doing, you were out there recently and got a firsthand look at the situation. What is the current state of the Colorado River? Well, the Colorado the Colorado River itself, if you were to um, see it, looks normal. Um, while I was out there, we did are on camera parts of the story by the river. And I would say it it looks like I would expect a river to look. However, um, where you can really see that there's a problem is if you look at two of its main reservoirs. So where um, the water from the river goes and is kind of stored and then distributed to seven states. And those reservoirs Um, for a year have been at dangerously low levels. So they're at these dangerously low levels. And of course, the seven states relying on these reservoirs, that that is a that is a large section of the country to be relying on on the Colorado River for for their water. And so this has been a big concern here in Washington, D.C. And so federal officials have decided to step in and try and mitigate things. What is it that folks here in Washington lawmakers are trying to do? Right. So last June, um, so exactly a year ago, um, when these reservoirs really hit kind of the lowest the government was willing to allow them to go, um, they or got close to that, I would say they started talking to the seven states um, who get their water from the river. And they said, you know, something's got to change. You guys can either come up with a plan to cut water or we'll come up with one for you. So the seven states started negotiating. And of course, nobody wants to give up their water allocations. Um, and, and there are states um, who have larger allocations than others. So basically, they couldn't come to an agreement. Lots of deadlines um, deadline that the federal government had given. Um, lots of deadlines were missed. And it got to the point a few months ago where the federal government said, okay, here's the plan we're going to do. You want to kind of make one last effort to figure out a plan for yourself? Um, And that seemed to be all it would take to finally get the states to come to an agreement. Um, But the agreement that they came to um, was that the three states that use the most water uh, would make some pretty big cuts. So that's California, Arizona, and Nevada. Um, 
However, they are being paid by the federal government to do that. Hmm. Um, So, you know, of course, if you're getting paid money, then you're more likely to make cuts. But that kind of a deal is not sustainable long term. Well, I was going to say, why why is that not sustainable? Is it simply because the government doesn't have the the resources to continue to pay states out to to do that? What is it like? I mean, I guess the the better question is like, what is it lawmakers are hoping to achieve by by taking this this short term solution? Right. So, if this were to continue long term, it would cost about a billion dollars a year, which just isn't going to happen um, in terms of if the federal government was going to keep paying these states. Mm -hmm. But what it's really doing is this is the plan for the next three years. And it does take some of the pressure off of the river. Um, There's also the added bonus of the fact that it was an extremely wet winter. And so the snowpack in the mountains is basically at record level. And as that is melting now, um, it is feeding the river. So we do have a lot of runoff from that that is increasing the water levels, but that also is temporary because the norm out West for the last 22 years has been drought. So we can't expect that rain and wet winters will continue. Um, So this deal, along with the snowpack melting, basically buys states three years to come up with what needs to be a permanent long-term solution. Um, And and that's going to require more cuts. It's going to require states to take a serious look at what it means to stop relying on the river that has been their main water source. So it's certainly a different way of uh, of getting their water, and these are not problems in America we're we're used to facing. You know, these are these are problems you find in 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 desert areas like the Middle East and in other places. So, um, so this sounds like it's a problem for three states, but in actuality, this is a problem. This is why we're talking about it here on the podcast. Is this is a problem that could affect every American, right? If because these waters, if if they can't find a way to keep the river at sustainable levels. What kind of impact does that have on farming? And then as a result, the price that we will pay for things at the grocery store for food. Right. So I I spoke with um, someone from California, uh, from the Metropolitan uh, Water District of Southern California, and he's been at the negotiation table with the federal government and the other states. And I asked him, you know, why? do we care? (laughs) You know, we don't get our water from the Colorado. We're over here in DC. Um, And he pointed out, you know, something that is very true. An end to water means an end to farming. And the entire United States gets a majority of its and fruit and nuts and other foods from Nevada, from California, from these states that rely on the Colorado River. And about 80% of the water that these these states are allocated from the river goes towards watering crops. Mm. So, you know, as they figure out what it looks like to conserve water, there's a chance that they're going to have to look at the agriculture industry. Um, So first of all, it matters to the rest of us because if they run out of water, then we may stop seeing that produce on our grocery store shelves altogether. Um, or, you know, the prices may increasingly um, just skyrocket. But 
as they come up with these plans to conserve, we likely will see some changes. Um, you know, maybe that means moving crops to other areas and planting crops um, in those states that can handle less water. Maybe that means that we will just see the higher prices because they're able to plant and harvest, you know, less. Yeah. Um, but it is something to keep an eye on. And it is likely something that we'll notice at the grocery store. It's a very interesting story, and if you haven't seen it on the 700 Club or on Faith Nation, you can check out Caitlin's story and the rest of the fantastic work she does for us over at CBNNews.com. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on The Debrief. We appreciate it. Thanks, Sean. All right, time to wrap things up with The Closer. Francesca Gino is a prominent professor at the Harvard School of Business, and she's known for researching dishonesty and unethical behavior. She's she's a behavioral scientist, and she's done a number of studies based on this. But she is now being accused of submitting work that contained falsified information. She has authored dozens of studies in this field. She's been featured on major TV networks, on major news shows, but over the last two weeks, several people, including a colleague, have come forward with claims that she falsified data in at least four papers. In a statement on LinkedIn... Gino said she was aware of the claims but and did not deny them or admit to any wrongdoing. She said, as I continue to evaluate these allegations and assess my options, I am limited, limited into what I can say publicly. I want to assure you that I take them seriously and they will be addressed. No word yet on whether Gino's next area of study will be human irony. And that will do it for this edition of the DC Debrief. Please, friends, make sure to tell a family member or someone else you care about about the podcast. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, I want to remind you to leave a five-star rating and a review to let me know what you think about the show and any suggestions you might have. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next week right here on the DC Debrief. Debrief.